And this morning we'll be looking at Galatians 3, 10 through 14. And I, I'd like to appeal to a great theologian, Shel Silverstein, this morning as we open up. If anyone's ever read Where the Sidewalk Ends, this collection of, of poems, uh, give us a little laugh to start off with. This one's called Smart. Uh, I read this as a child, and then my older sister got it for our children because she said they needed to have it as well. But this is called Smart. Listen to this, and uh, then I'll, I'll tie it in, I promise. <laughs> it says, My dad gave me $1 bill because I'm his smartest son, and I swapped it for two shiny quarters because two is more than one. And then I took the quarters and traded them to Lou for three, di- for three dimes. I guess he don't know that three is more than two. Just then along came old blind Bates, and just because he can't see, he gave me four nickels for my three dimes, and four is more than three. Getting the pattern here? And I took the nickels to Hiram Coombs down, the se- down at the seed feed store, and the fool gave me five pennies for them. And five is more than four. And then I went and showed my dad. And he got red in the cheeks and closed his eyes and shook his head. Too proud of me to speak. (laughs) There's uh, Those are poor trades, if you didn't catch it. Obviously, a a dollar is worth more than than two quarters. And this morning, as we look at Galatians, we're looking at a a concept, this thought of of receiving Christ's righteousness for our sin. It's something that, that Martin Luther has called the heavenly exchange. It's this, this trade that, that happens, this exchange of our sin for Christ's righteousness, the exchange of, of our condemnation and our curse for Christ's life and his spirit. Now, Jesus didn't make this trade because he was foolish. Uh, he didn't do it because he thought he was getting a, a good deal. Uh, he did it for our good. And for his glory. And Galatians chapter 3 verses 10 through 14 teaches us this. It teaches us this key point. Jesus became a curse to redeem us from the curse of the law. Jesus became a curse to redeem us from the curse of the law. I'm sure you didn't come in this morning thinking that you were under a curse. Or maybe you haven't thought about the fact that you have been redeemed from being under a curse. It's, it's really a sobering reality. It's a reality that should change our lives in every way, especially if we've put our faith in Christ, if we understand what we have been redeemed from, from being cursed by God to being blessed by God. I want to read these verses in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, and then we'll ask a few questions. But look with me at Galatians 3, the words of of God to us this morning, beginning in verse 10. It reads, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, He who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus 
the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So the main point of these verses, again, is that Jesus became a curse to redeem us from the curse of the law. And I just want to ask a few questions. And the first one is this. Why are we cursed? Why are we cursed? We want to look at the link here. Verse 9, we, were, we read last week about, about Abraham. And we said, verse 9 says, So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Verse 10 then draws a contrast. It says, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. That, that Abraham was blessed and those that are like Abraham by faith are blessed and those who are seeking to, to earn favor with God through the law are actually under a curse. Those who seek to keep the law of Moses are not simply, simply said to be sinners that are in great need. Paul says that they are under a curse. Curses, it's not something that's common in our context. It's not something that we really talk about. So it's helpful to maybe think about what's the opposite of curse. The opposite of curse is blessing. When we are blessed by God, it's, it's evidence that he is for us, that, that he is seeking our good. So then what is the curse of God except that God is not for us? He is against us. And he is in us, he is over us in judgment. Deuteronomy twenty-seven twenty-six is what's quoted there. Um, in in verse 10, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, he draws on Deuteronomy 27 to prove his point. He says, it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Again, that's from Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. It's the last of a series of curses that are that are there in Deuteronomy 27. And what's going on is, is Moses is talking about what's going to happen when they get into the promised land. When they cross the Jordan, when they are in the land of Canaan, there's something that they're supposed to do. You remember the 12 tribes of Israel, they're to divide in two. And six tribes are to go on Mount Ebal, and six tribes are to go on Mount Gerizim. And there this, this natural amphitheater of sorts would be formed with six tribes on one side and six tribes on the other side. And the Levites would be in the, in the middle. And the Levites would read the verses that we find in Deuteronomy 27, things like this. Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people that were on Mount Ebal would then say, Amen. They would say, So be it. They would say, Yes. We will be cursed if we do that. Then he would say, Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark. And all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed is he who misleads a blind person on the road. And all the people shall say, Amen. And so it goes, all these curses. And the last one is, Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say, Amen. said, Yes, we will be cursed if we do not keep the law. And then the Levites would read the blessings, the blessings that would come on the people for obedience. Blessed shall you be in your city, and blessed, blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body, and the produce of your ground, and the offspring of your beasts, and the increase of your herd, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. And all these blessings that are pronounced, that God would be for the people. 
And people would respond and say, Amen. If we obey God's law, then God will be for us. And so Paul quotes Deuteronomy 27, talking about that the law is very clear, that if you do not obey it, if we don't obey everything that's written in the law, then the curse of God is upon us. There is life in obedience to the law. There is blessing in obedience to the law, but there is cursing in disobedience to it. And Paul recalls this ceremony, and he talks about this claim to be justified by works, and he kind of takes it to another level. He contends that not only can you not be justified by works, but if that is what you are relying on, then you are under a curse. The curse of the law that's laid out in Deuteronomy 27. Notice, Paul doesn't assume that anyone can be justified by the law. Look at verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul Paul is not giving even the option to say, why don't you try it out? He says no one can be justified by the works of the law because no one can do it. The standard is perfection, and everyone who relies on works of the law for justification is under a curse because they cannot keep the entire law. You remember what James says. He says, whoever keeps the entire law but offends where? In one point is now guilty of all because he is a law breaker. Scripture is clear that every human being is a sinner. And Paul says, in essence, if you could keep the whole law, you could be justified by it, but no one can do that. And since you can't, you are under a curse. Every one of us is under a curse because we cannot keep the whole law. Paul continues to argue in verses 11 and 12 from Scripture. Let's read those again. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, it's clear, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. His argument kind of goes like this. He says, Scripture is clear that no one can be justified by the law because the righteous live by faith. That's that's the way it's always been. This is the argument he made previously. You remember we talked about that Abraham was not justified by works. Abraham was justified by faith. It was the same for Abraham. And he says it's never been that way. It's never been that we're supposed to seek righteousness by obeying the law. That's rooted in this idea that you can make yourself right before God. And that's what he's quoting there in verse 12 is from Leviticus. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. And this is what the Pharisees and the Judaizers were saying. We need to live by them. We need to practice these laws. This is how we find life. But you remember, if you look back in verse chapter 2, verse 18, what did Paul say? If I rebuild what I have once destroyed, speaking of the law, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What was his point? He said, if I build the law back up, what am I doing? I'm just showing that I can't do it. It was great this morning as we were looking in, in Acts 15, uh, the Jerusalem Council. We read these words of, of Peter as he talked about the law and made the same argument that Paul is making. Acts 15 uh, verse 10 says, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, speaking of the law, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. He says that what was going on as people were coming in there said, you need to be circumcised, you need to keep the law of Moses. Peter comes and says, why are we doing this? We all know that we can't do it. We've all tried, and now you're trying to put this burden, this yoke on people 
when we know that we can't do the works of the law. Paul said it this morning, he said that that you start to see this New Testament understanding of the law come out, that the law was never meant to be the ladder like we talked about, that you're to climb to God. But rather it was evidence of the fact that you can't get to God based on your good works. That quote in Leviticus is from Leviticus, and it's the theme of those who were seeking to be justified by the law. We can do it. I thought, probably because I have little kids, I've seen it a couple times, but I think it's, is it Bob the Builder? And he always says, can we build it? Yes, we can. And the Pharisees looked at the law and they said, can we do it? And the Judaizers looked at the law and said, can we fulfill it? And they said, yes, we can. We can do it. The law is not the problem. It's not the law. The, the problem is, is us. And Paul actually isn't addressing so much here that we can't keep the law. God knew that when he set it up. The, the problem is that we distort the law and we try to make it the way that we get to God. The law is not the problem. And even the fact that we can't keep the law is not the problem. It's that we take the law and make it something that it was never intended to be. Last night, uh, the girls and I put together a shelf. It was interesting at times. Uh, but it was it was went together with screws and nails. Now, I would be a fool to take a hammer and use that to put in the screws. It's not what it's intended for. And I would be just as foolish to take uh, the nails and try to put them in with a screwdriver. I will admit I have done that in a pinch. I'm sure you have. It doesn't work very well. That's the same thing. You're using something that's that's not the purpose it's intended for. And the same thing was going on here with the law. They were using it as a means of righteousness, and that's never what it was intended to be used for. The the quote here in verse 11, uh, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. That quote there, the righteous man shall live by faith, is from Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. Let's look at Habakkuk. Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, if you need help finding it. If you hit Zephaniah, you just went a little bit too far. Uh, Habakkuk, chapter 2. And the quote is there in verse 4, but it's set in contrast to something. Here's what it says, Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. What's the heart of the issue? The heart of the issue is pride. The heart of the issue is people that say, we can do it. Can we keep the law? Yes, we can. We can do it. And Paul says, that's not of faith. The law is not of faith if that's what you're taking it to be. It's that this the root of, of legalism that looks at the law and says, yeah, I can, I can do that. We all fall into this prideful self-deception, thinking that we can do the impossible. I mean, have you ever done that? You've watched someone do something and you say, yeah, I can do that. I remember when the Summer Olympics were here four years ago. They're coming again in in 2012. They'll be in London, and they'll be on our TV sets. And we were watching some gymnastics at some point, I remember. And, you know, you watch these these people do gymnastics, and they seem to do things that are so simple. They make it look so easy. 
Have you ever tried to do some of that? I will be honest and admit that I have and that my wife laughed at me, rightfully so. <laughs> it's, it's not as easy as it looks. You think that you can do something like that, but you can't. It's impossible for some, for most of us. The problem is that we're looking at the law. We're looking at this law as this, this path to being justified. And God says that's not the purpose of it. It's a dead end. You get to the law, and it, it, that's not where it leads. It doesn't lead to you being justified. It's like walking out on a bridge, and you suddenly realize it doesn't it doesn't span the gap. Well, it was never intended to. That wasn't the purpose of the law. So the question we asked is, why are we cursed? We're cursed because we seek to keep God's law as a way of being made righteous before him. But we end up breaking the law in doing that. And that was the purpose of the law, to show us that we couldn't do it. But when we break the law, we incur God's wrath against us. His curse is upon us because we cannot keep the law because of our sins. So we are under a curse. Not very good news, is it? So the next question is, what do we do? If I'm under a curse, I want to get out from underneath it. So what, what do I do? What, what do I do now? And in some ways, that question has already been answered throughout this chapter. It's faith. We believe. We have faith. But but faith in what? And how do we deal with the fact that this that the curse that's resulted it's for it's resulted from our failure to keep the law? We're, we're still under this this curse. What are we going to do about this problem? And the answer is first of all that Christ redeems us. L- look at these verses. Um, Verse 13, Paul, in a sense, presents the dead end. He presents the way to not get to God. And then he says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ redeemed us. It's the language of the market. The language even in that day of of a slave auction. To be redeemed is to be bought back. A payment has been made. A purchase of some kind has been made. Someone or something has been bought. How does Christ redeem us? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Christ redeems us by becoming a curse for us. Again, that language of redemption is is of a, a market of of a price being paid. What is the price? The price is, is for us for for Jesus to become a curse, and the, and the price in many ways is is blood. First Peter one says in verse seventeen, if you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing. That you were not redeemed, there's that word again, you were not redeemed, you were not bought with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. You weren't bought with silver and gold. He says, what were you bought with? But with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. And what that took was a price, and the price was blood was death and god in, in all of his holiness and his righteousness he takes his son and sends him to earth 
And he takes all of our sin and places it upon his son. That's the truth that we read about in Isaiah 53, isn't it? That Jesus became a curse for us, that he was numbered with the transgressors, that he bore the sins of many, that he interceded for the sinner. Let me read a a quote for you from from Martin Luther on this, this thought. He says, All of the prophets of old said that Christ should be the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, blasphemer that ever was or ever could be on earth. Did you hear that? That struck me as very strange to say. All the prophets of old said that Christ, the Messiah, should be the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, blasphemer that ever was or ever could be on earth. When he took the sins of the whole world upon himself, Christ was no longer an innocent person. He was a sinner, burdened with the sins of a Paul who was a blasphemer, burdened with the sins of a Peter who denied Christ, burdened with the sins of a David who committed adultery and murder and gave the heathen occasion to laugh at the Lord. In short, Christ was charged with the sins of all men, that he should pay for them with his own blood. The curse struck him. The law found him among sinners. He was not only in the company of sinners, he had gone so far as to invest himself with the flesh and blood of sinners. So the law judged and hanged him for a sinner. Jesus became a curse. I I think it's interesting the way it says it. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. I don't know if that could also be translated by becoming accursed for us, but I think it is unique that it says he became a curse for us, not just accursed. He became one who was actually looked on as a curse. He was set up as an example of of one that transgresses the law. This is the Old Testament, that, that, that quote there, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. If someone broke the law to the point that the, the judgment was was death, usually by stoning, after they had died, they were taken and put up on a, on a post or on a pole or on a piece of wood on a tree, and they were hung up for everyone to see this is what happens to those who disobey God's law. They are a curse. You'll remember when Jesus was was hung on the cross that they said he was hung up, but the Jews came and said, we want you to take him down before Sabbath, before the sun sets, because they, and that was the law that they were not supposed to stay up all day long, but they were to be brought down there, but they were to be put up as this, this, this curse to be seen, to say this person is cursed by God. And Jesus was put up on a tree for everyone to look at And they were all to look at him and they were to say, this man is cursed by God. That was the the message that was being sent. So a crucified Savior, a, a man that was hung on a tree, cursed by God, would have been horribly offensive to the Jewish people. And it would have been complete foolishness to everyone else. How could a man condemned by God be the Messiah? How could someone who was hung on a tree be the person that we look to for salvation? And surely Paul struggled with this until he saw that he wasn't condemned for his own sin, but that he bore the curse and the shame and the punishment for sins that were not his own. 
you know, you would think that Paul might hide this truth, that Jesus was hung up on a tree, that he was cursed. But he, he makes it the center of his message. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Jesus was a curse. He was cursed by God. But not because he was a sinner. But because we were. Paul puts it at the center of his message because it, it is the center of the message. It's the place, as one of my favorite songs says, it's the place where heaven's peace and perfect justice Kiss a guilty world in love. That's where all of who God is comes together. And Christ pays the penalty for our sins. And yet he shows us what love and grace are. I was struck as I was thinking about this this verse. About the love of God that's seen in this passage. I mean, I know the guilt and the shame of my sin. And as I thought about it, I, I thought about... Um, this past year, I read a book called The, the Scarlet Letter. I don't know if it's this classic American literature by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Not everything in it is, is something that I would propose as, as truth. And yet, it tells the story of a woman named Hester Prynne, who was a, a Puritan woman convicted of adultery. And the punishment for her sin was that she was then to wear a scarlet letter, a red A, on her dress for the rest of her life to show who she was. She was to bear her shame on her chest she was forced to show everyone what she had done what a terrible punishment to walk through life with your sin emblazoned right on the front of you for everyone to see can you imagine facing that sin that punishment for your sins for all the sins that you have committed what letter would be on your chest this morning I know we'd have to change the letter almost every second because we are in sin so often. What sin would you bear for all the world to see? What what would be your curse? What sin would, would everyone be looking at and seeing? What shame would you have? But if we are in Christ, what's the message here? The message is that we have no sin left to wear. It's all been put on Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus took all of our condemnation on himself when he became a curse. He took your sins and he gave you his righteousness. And here's the beautiful thing. The only scarlet thing that you wear is the blood of Jesus that cleanses you from all sin. He has purchased your soul. He has redeemed you and he has given you his righteousness so what do we do if we're under a curse we do what paul has been telling us throughout this entire chapter we believe we put our faith in christ alone we don't try to climb the ladder of the law we stop and we say i can't climb the ladder of the law but christ has come and he has become a curse for us to redeem us from the curse of the law he has done everything that needs to be done So we could ask the question, am I under a curse any longer? Am I still cursed? And verse 14 answers that. It gives us the reason that Christ did it. Let's read verses 13 and 14 together. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Then he gives the support for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But he did it. He became a curse for us in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through 
faith. Paul summarizes what he's been saying in the first 13 verses. You remember he says that the Spirit has come to us. That he, he argues from their experience. He says, you received the gift of the Spirit. Don't you remember that? And you received the gift of the gift of the Spirit by faith. And then he says in verses 6, six through 9, and you are you are blessed as a child of Abraham. By faith, you become a, a child of Abraham. What's he say in verse 14? He goes back to that. He says, in Christ Jesus, you receive the blessing of Abraham. To Gentiles, to all people, anyone can receive the blessing of Abraham because it comes by faith. And then he says, so that you would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. We receive the Spirit through faith. He says, you're no longer under a curse. It's the exact opposite. It's this heavenly exchange that we come to Christ and we confess our sins and he takes all of our sins and he puts them on himself. And he takes the punishment for us and he takes the curse for us and he becomes a curse for us. And not only does he become a curse for us, that's not the end of it. Then he says, and now I'm going to give you all the blessings of Abraham. I'm going to make you a child of Abraham. I'm going to make you a child of faith. I'm going to bless you. And then I'm going to give you the promise of the Holy Spirit who will be with you and live in you and and cause you to be able to do these things that you could never do. Jesus Christ gives himself up for us. Why? So that we might be blessed with Abraham and receive the gift of the Spirit. When I read things like that, I feel like I can go back to to Galatians 2.20, and understand why Paul would say that that personal, remember how personal he got, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That Jesus loved Paul and gave his life for Paul, became a curse for Paul. And we can say the same for us. That Jesus died for us that he became a curse for us. Why? Because he loves us. He gave himself up for us. And God is glorified in that. We remember that from the beginning of Galatians, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forevermore. Who is exalted when we are saved by faith and not by works? If I climb the ladder, then I say, look at me. But if I come to Jesus and I say, you took my curse, you paid the price, you did everything that that I couldn't do, then God is lifted up and God is glorified and God is seen as great and he's seen as our redeemer. And what an irony that in becoming a curse, that in becoming something that people would point their fingers at and shame, Jesus, in fact, seals his glory, gives us more reason to lift him up and to see him as great. So, we were under a curse. But Jesus has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. What a heavenly exchange. All my sin for all of his righteousness. My curse for his blessing. My death for his life. How do we receive it? By faith. Let's pray together.